Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We've got something really exciting today. Alina, tell everyone about it. We've got with us Sirio Canastone, who is an archaeologist working at the Institute of Heritage Sciences of the Spanish National Research Council, and she was a teaching fellow at UCL uh, Institute of Archaeology. And today we're going completely out of the box, and we're going to be talking about the Mali Empire. Welcome, Sirio. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is really good. We don't do nearly enough African history, so this is uh, going to be really interesting for our listeners as well. What got you interested in African history, and where do you find your sources? So I guess that what got me into it is the fact that I knew absolutely nothing about it. Like, I think it was my, must have been my second year undergrad. I saw there was an option on African states. And then I just suddenly realized that all I knew about Africa was human origins and colonialism. And I knew absolutely nothing between those two things. Um, so I took this option and I was just like fascinated because this, of course, the things that happen between those two um, elements. There's like all kinds of states and civilizations and just other human groups that are interesting for all kinds of reasons. And, and not only that, but also it challenges many of the things that we take for granted about how human societies work and how human societies evolve. And like technical stuff like being able to have iron before bronze, which doesn't really happen in Europe and the Middle East, to how states are structured. So suddenly all these theoretical models that are generally based on ideas from um, and examples from the Middle East and Europe don't work in Africa at all, which makes us re- force, forces us to rethink um, what we know about the diversity of the human past, which I really like. <laughs> That's um, really good. It's like you say, this is a classic case, isn't it, of a historian wanting to know more about something, finding nobody else has done it, so spending their whole life working on it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a whole continent. There's quite a few of us doing it now, but it's still really interesting. And what you mentioned about the sources is another one of the things that it's really, really interesting. Because um, I kind of really speak for the whole continent because it's massive. But for, for the bit I know more about in West Africa, um, that's something that also hooked me in, the diversity of the sources. Because you have um, oral traditions, um, which are really, really rich. And absolutely fascinating. Most of the societies there don't really have a tradition of written history, with some notable exceptions. But they have super strong uh, methods of keeping history alive by passing it orally. So in in the former area of the Mali Empire, you have the griots, which are specialists of the spoken word. 
that can um, talk about history from the 13th century onwards. And of course, this is political history because the reason why these people exist is to sing praises of important people by reminding them of how great their ancestors are. But I mean, all history is political in some way or others. And there's so many lineages and so many different traditions from like massive epics to small village um, stories that you can check one with the other and create this incredibly rich tapestry. But on top of that, it has some written um, indigenous sources like the Timbuktu Tariqs, for instance, from the 17th and 19th centuries. You have all the texts from Arabic traders and geographers and historians starting on the 8th century, really. And then you get all the Europeans coming on the coast and also writing their own things, plus the archaeology. Um, which is extremely exciting because there's been a lot less done than in other parts of the world. So every single excavation changes what we know about the history of a particular region in ways that sometimes is quite dramatic. And being able to put all these sources together in this wonderful multi-layered puzzle is something that I absolutely adore as well. So first of all, because we're going to talk about the Mali Empire, can you tell us where Mali is actually located? Okay, so... Basic coordinates, so Mali. Um, Mali was an empire that started in the 13th century, starts um, dispersing into its component parts in the 16th, so 13th to 16th century. And it was in the, it was massive. Uh, so it covered the areas where currently we have the states of Mali, Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Burkina Faso, and also parts of Mauritania, Ivory Coast, and Sierra Leone. So quite big. How so? How did they form an empire? Because that is big. Um, so mm-hmm. how was it created? How did that come about? So initially, before being a massive empire, Mali was a relatively small kingdom in in the southern half of what's currently Mali. We know it already existed by the 11th century because Arab historians mention it. Um, and in the 13th century, it was quite a bit lot of turmoil. Uh, because the, the power that had formerly controlled the area, the Ghana Empire, had less power. And then there was a range of smaller states fighting for control. And eventually boiled down to two states, Soso and Mali. And it was Mali that won, and that the leadership of the legendary Sinjata Keita, who defeated everybody and started expanding in, in all directions. And, and this Sinjata, um, it's a bit of a King Arthur figure, in that... We know he probably did exist, but there's also all kinds of mythical stuff attached to him. Um, and the main source for, for the beginning of the empire, we don't really know much other than like the, the general outline. The main source is this epic called the Sunjata epic, named after Sunjata, obviously. And that it's the most awesome adventure story that has everything in it. It has from like a mother with supernatural powers that can turn into a porcupine, brotherly treason, uh, the hero that has to go into exile, uh, having to flee after being the um, son of the king, but starting from zero in foreign lands, epic battles against a sorcerer king called Samanguru, um, all kinds of stuff. The day Hollywood gets its hands on it, it's going to be an absolutely amazing film. Um, <laughs> but it also has some like, generally historically useful bits, um, which we just do piece together what we know about the early empire. But effectively, it's that it's a small kingdom, finds a vacuum of power, uh, starts conquering other people and forging alliances, because we call it an empire, but really in some ways it's more a federation 
with an unequal relationship between the different parts. So some parts were directly controlled centrally, others were more autonomous and just paid taxes once a year. So the relationship of the core of the empire to um, the rest was quite diverse. Were they king emperors? How, how do we... How do we reference these people? But were there any unusual ones? Oh, yes, certainly. Well, uh, Sunjata, for starters, was quite an interesting one because um, according to the very rich Sunjata, it has all kinds of magical powers and does all the supernatural stuff. But there were also there were others that were very interesting. We have some that come to mind, I guess. Um, Sakura, who was a, some Japanese but isn't, Ismailian, um, 14th century emperor that um, started his life as a slave, um, was freed and eventually managed to um, become the emperor himself. We don't really know much about him because it's just an Arab historian in Khaldun that talks about him. We know he was a devout Muslim and he, in fact, was killed uh, on his return from Mecca. But yes, uh, slaves did actually have more power than thing in the Mali Empire. The head of the slaves was a very, very powerful figure in court. And yeah, we had a former slave becoming emperor. Another famous one is um, Mansa. So Mansa is the title that kings received. So we have Mansa Sakura, and it was Mansa Muhammad in the 14th century that um, according to his successor, he really wanted to discover what was at the end of the Atlantic Ocean. So um, he filled... 200 ships with men and 200 with gold and provisions for years. And he told them, do not come back till you find land or your provisions run out. And of those boats, only one came back uh, and said, well, all the others died. Uh, So the empress is like, not good enough. So he um, went himself with a thousand boats and was never heard from again. Uh, So some people have argued this is the Malians arriving to America. Um, before Columbus, but um, probably wasn't the case. Probably it was a much sadder end. But he was quite an eccentric one. The most famous one, though, by far, is Mansa Musa, who was a 14th century also emperor that um, became famous because he converted Islam and he decided to do the pilgrimage to Mecca. And on his way, he stopped in Cairo and he brought so much gold with him that he devalued the price of gold for over two decades. <laughs> that is a lot of bling. I mean, somebody, somebody recently calculated that he was the richest person to ever have lived, uh, adjusting for inflation and so on. Um, so quite a remarkable character, that one. That's amazing. Um, Mali has a profile beyond its own borders, though, doesn't it? What is mm-hmm. Mali known for uh, in the medieval period around the world? So especially after this uh, trip to Cairo, um, and it's important to say that this Mansa Musa, he wasn't the richest or the most important king of Mali. He just, the one that showed up the day everybody had brought the cameras, uh, i.e. he showed up at the height of Mamluk historiography, so everybody wrote about him. And then all this, all these stories of the Malian king covered in gold spread across the Arab world in Europe. So um, there's the main thing that's associated across the medieval period with Mali, tons of gold. Um, and Mansa Musa quite literally puts Mali on the map because there's um, a 14th century atlas from a geographer in Mallorca um, in the Balearic Islands where that has the first known depiction, European depiction of um, the king of Mali. And it's this 
really rich, regal man with a massive golden nugget um, in his hand. So throughout this period, Mali is directly associated with gold. Something that I'd like to say, though, that's often, like, people don't realize this, but during this whole period, Afro, like, European kingdoms and African kingdoms traded as equals. Mm. Because afterwards, there's this, with imperialism and colonialism, there's this diminishing of the importance, like, of the way African kingdoms are portrayed. But in these initial portrayals, there's, like, our brother king of Mali sells us this stuff. And African um, kingdoms sent um, diplomatic embassies to to Spain, to France, to the Vatican, all for the period as equals. So the way summing up, I guess, the way the Mali Empire is known in spirit is like super perfilled, really loaded, and another of the great kingdoms of the era. So where was the capital of Mali? Okay, that's a more difficult question than it sounds. <laughs> because, <laughs> so we have this like incredibly wealthy empire, enormous geographically, that we know from oral traditions and um, Arabic sources. So obviously archaeologists, the first thing that we want to find is the massive capital. There's even an account of an Arab traveller called Imbatuta um, that visited the capital of Mali in 1352 and described this awesome town where the, um, the emperor had got himself uh, an Andalusian um, interior designer slash poet to make this uh, reception hall for him that looked awesome and has golden arches. So for decades, archaeologists tried to find this, this famous capital of this powerful empire to no use. Really, we haven't found it yet. If you look on like Wikipedia, Wikipedia and even Encyclopedia Britannica, it says that the capital is in a place called Niani. This is incorrect. Um, the reason for this is because um, the first printed version of the Sunjata epic said that the capital was Niani in current Guinea. Um, but there were excavations there in the 70s, and the excavations show there's a massive occupation gap um, between the, I think it's the 13th and the 16th centuries, was exactly when the empire existed. So this uh, could not have been the capital visited by the Arab travelers. So where was it? There's different options, um, and it's a very long debate. I was part of a team that excavated site in the north called Sorotomo, uh, which has the right dates, and it's big enough, and it's a very promising candidate. But what some people, including myself, have been arguing is that we got this whole thing wrong, that looking for the capital is going about it in the wrong way because if you look at oral traditions, nobody talks about capitals. They talk about Mansadugus. That means literally Kingstown. And why is this important? Because a Kingstown doesn't have to always be in the same place and a king may have multiple towns. And what we get from the impression we get from oral traditions is that um, kings just change the center of power from king to king and even from period to period, that this idea that the capital always has to be in the same place and that kings inherit that space from one another um, is not really relevant to this context. That the what we're looking for, for what we should be looking for, far more transient sites, that political centers are quite mobile and depend on the king. And it was even possible that kings had multiple um, Kingstowns at the same time. And that by looking at the capital, we've been looking for the wrong concept. Um, and 
the sites that were actually the largest sites were commercial cities, Timbuktu, Gao, Jenne, Dia, all of these sites that have been excavated because they were so big and people assumed they must have been the capital, were actually trading towns and political centers were a lot more ephemeral. So there's also then challenges our understanding of what a big empire is supposed to work alike. Um, Nobody wants to hear that version though, because Nicolas Cage can't make a treasure hunting film out of that. <laughs> I'm sure he can. I mean, that's a film to look for. Um, not that that's what anybody wants to find, because that's just going to be problems. Yeah, it's interesting though that um, that's sort of a modern thing that we're projecting backwards, looking for this one centre where everything works from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much a modern notion. It's not even. Um, a European or Middle Eastern one, because um, we have plenty of examples of medieval Europe of power centers that shifted, courts that shifted. Ethiopia had roving capitals uh, at the time. So we just need to readjust our notions to the fact that things in the past worked differently. And that's a good and interesting. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we now know that there is, there's no massive Mali empire now. So what happened to it? Well, the Mali empire um, starts gradually losing power. In the 15th century, it starts losing all its vassal states in the north. Hmm. Uh, in the 16th century, the, the Atlantic province, Kabul, becomes independent because it's getting quite wealthy in the Atlantic trade. Then there's the Songhai empire in the northeast that gradually conquers all of Mali's territories in the 16th century. It also loses control of the gold mines. And it probably, Mali as a much smaller kingdom survives, well, it definitely survived into the 17th century, even longer. But it just, its component parts start getting more powerful. It has the Songhai Empire in the north, all kinds of other powers attacking it, and it just disperses into its component parts. But um, I think it's worth mentioning that its legacy, it's one of the strongest historically, in all of Africa. Because not only was the current country named after it when um, it got its independence in the 1960s, the first elected president of Mali was uh, Modibo Keita, whose surname is of the same lineage as Njata Keita, the founder of the empire. So obviously, there's still the, the, still history, uh, the history of Mali carries an enormous weight culturally and politically across the whole region. Right. So we want to do a bit of myth busting. I'm actually really interested to how you respond to people when they say to you that the people who really built Africa are aliens. 
That's what every serious historian wants to hear. But I'm underlining that I do not believe in this at all. (laughs) But that's a classic one. And when I was at UCL, I would regularly get people calling into the office asking me about aliens. Um, There's a friend of mine, um, Gabe Moshenska, wrote a very, very cool paper about alternative fringe archaeologists. And, and what he showed is that as soon as you scratch his hand a bit, aliens tend to be like racism, anti-Semitism, and white supremacism, really not very well disguised. Um, I saw this um, T-shirt the other day on the internet, which I proceeded to buy immediately, that said, just because white people didn't build it doesn't mean it was aliens. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. That's what it tends to be. when. So Great Zimbabwe is one of the most famous archaeological sites um, in all of Africa. There's really, really impressive ruins. And when Europeans first discovered it, they said, obviously, Africans couldn't have built this. It must have been the Phoenicians. It must have been the Queen of Sheba. It must have been all kinds of people. And obviously, I must say, not all Europeans, they were like, there was a lovely archaeologist called Gertrude um, Clayton Thompson that actually said, that's not true, it was Africans. It was definitely Africans. Um, But aliens are the new uh, Queen of Sheba. Aliens are the new Phoenicians. It just all racism used to attribute this to other people or new racism just attributes it to aliens. But that's all it is. Um, so I just had to explain this time and time again. Because some people just say this with like the best of intentions and then realize all the like really horrible stuff that lies just, just a tiny bit below the surface of this alien stories. But at the end of the day, it's just racism disguised. <laughs> Exactly like, because um, Alex and I have come across this a couple of times, is that aliens built the um, the pyramids. Mm-hmm. With the same thing. Um, obviously, white people were not involved there, but it must have been aliens. There's all kinds of perfectly, we know how these things were built. And to be fair, if you have that amount of manpower and time, it's not that difficult to understand how it was built. I think um, we all know that the pyramid is actually an inflatable because this was revealed in the Minions movie. Oh, that, that, all me. that, all that. giant inflatable. It wasn't aliens. That makes so much more sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so racism is one. And I guess I want to ask you what problems you face with um, popular conceptions and stuff. I'm guessing you spend your whole life beating your head against a wall because everyone's preconceptions about all of African history is shaped by colonialism later on. Uh, like, I understand because that's where I was when I started. Like, I, what got me into this was my own ignorance about this fascinating history. Um, so I understand. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to fix it. But the, the problem, I guess, is there's a lot of interest in African history. And... But because until recently, there were not archaeologists relatively young in the continent. And now there's some countries like Senegal, I'm like lucky enough to work in a country where um, there's a really good archaeology department uh, that has a very, very productive PhD program. So there's all kinds of amazing Senegalese archaeologists. But um, other African countries don't have archaeology departments and therefore there's not that much archaeology being carried on in the country. And the few archaeologists that exist are too um, busy dealing with primary research as to write general public stuff. Um, and, and I was doing exactly the same. And one day like, I can't believe all this public stuff about Africa is so bad. Why are people not writing better things? And then I realized, well, 
if people like me were not doing it, who was going to do it? Because <laughs> we were the ones with the information. Uh, mm. So I took it on uh, as part of my work to try to generate more accessible um, resources about African history. So I did a couple of like, talks like, and um, publications and so on to try to make this more accessible because I think there's the, the lingering habits of, of colonialism and imperialism that had to deny the existence of African history in order to justify the supposedly civilizing missions. Because if somebody has already extremely rich civilizations, you cannot really justify civilizing them. So they had to deny the existence of African history in order to um, supposedly justify what they were doing, which wasn't that at all. Uh, so we're still dealing with that legacy Plus, the objectively small amount of archaeology has been done. That's a really difficult mix that we need to overcome. Um, but I think I see more and more colleagues uh, taking the time to, to produce accessible materials for the general public. So I'm really hoping this will change um, in coming years. And it's really important it does because otherwise we're just, again, feeling racism and there's misconceptions of Africa as an, an eternal present of hunter-gatherers and hunger and huts and droughts. And, and there's definitely hunter-gatherers and, and huts and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But that's not all African history is. It's far yeah. richer than that. I'm tempted to go onto Wikipedia and start uh, naming things out for you in a list. <laughs> I think we might be here all day though. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> What before before we round off? Who was your favourite character or or person uh, within the Mali Empire that you've come across? Oh, it wasn't actually well. So my my own work is not on the central Mali Empire. I work on the Atlantic province that was called Cabo. Mm. And something cool about Cabo is that it had queens. And the Mali Empire mostly had um, male rulers, but Cabo just every now and then had um, had female rulers and these female rulers were also warriors and they were absolutely amazing and there was one a 19th century one called um, Fantasani that managed to she was this amazing diplomat and she managed to at a time where power was fading because Kabul had just collapsed and you had the French trying to arrive, the Portuguese trying to arrive, the Brits multiple warlords in the region, everybody fighting for power. She managed to um, side with the French to defeat the British and then side with the British to defeat the French and then side with both of them to defeat her cousin. And stay That's in brilliant. Time. <laughs> um, and she was amazing. So I think she probably would be one of my favourites. What was her name? Fantasani. That's amazing. Um, you have, so obviously you have the stuff on the rulers and that. Do you find stuff about everyday people? Not people like named as such. Well, some individuals are often difficult to, to trace archaeologically, obviously. We have burials, and for instance, in northern Mali, with, um, as Islam becomes more widespread, we start having tombstones that sometimes give us names of specific people that were there, who were nothing, they were not emperors, they were not... Um, kings or any important people that were just ordinary people we can get a bit of information from those burials um but other than that we just get traces so if we excavate a furnace we get some idea of what the life of that 
blacksmith was like. Of we we excavate um, a kiln, we can get an idea of what those potters were doing. But it's mostly like hints and suggestions rather than details histories of specific individuals. So coming back to your research, because I know you're you're going out to do some um, some excavating really soon, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, just in in a few days. Uh, next Monday, I'm heading to Senegal, which should be fun. You're allowed to leave the house. That's amazing. So what's going on there? So we we're looking at. Um, luckily, the COVID situation is it's much better in Senegal. We're still taking all kinds of precautions. All the teams getting tests. We'll keep distances and so on, and we won't be excavating. We'll just be surveying and collecting old traditions. Um, but we're we going to be documenting um, the fortresses of a particular area of Cabo. So I mentioned Cabo was the Atlantic province of Mali, and Cabo itself was divided into smaller territories. So we're going to be looking at one specific territory called Pachana that survived as a political unit to five different states. Um, and we're going to look, be looking at its fortresses and how they change over time. Um, so that should be fun. I'm taking all the toys, including drones and stuff, to get nice maps, which I'm quite excited about. Oh, my drone's been in its backpack for so long now. <laughs> he needs to fly again. <laughs> Poor little Stanley. Oh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming and giving us an overview of the Mali Empire and sort of setting, putting that gap, that big gap you mentioned between um, birth of man and colonialism, giving us something to put in there. It's a great start for us. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more. And hopefully yeah. you want other colleagues to, to start filling in as well. Absolutely. Send them all our way. I shall. Uh, so, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Join us tomorrow when Louise Creechum will be with us to talk all about Victorian learning difficulties. We're going to be talking about the likes of autism and dyslexia and dyspraxia and how they were dealt with at the time. So don't miss that. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.